If you're like me, you spent January 21st, 2017, marching. We're still marching, we're still protesting, but now we have to also organize. The Women's March was the largest peaceful single day protest in US history. And by the time we took our pink hats off, seven million women on all seven continents had marched to remind the world that women's rights are human rights. We are here to be respected. We are here to be nasty. There is nothing more powerful than a group of determined sisters marching alongside with their partners and their determined sons and brothers and fathers standing up for what we know is right. Activist, social entrepreneur, and educator Jenna Arnold was one of the organizers. Named one of Oprah's Super Soul 100, her new book, her first, Raising Our Hands, answers the urgent questions many white women are asking. Here we have a massive voting block, massive demographic that has overwhelming influence in both good and very bad ways, not just nationally, but globally. And nobody's talking to her about that power and what comes with that level of responsibility that comes with that influence. They're asking how to stop avoiding hard conversations, accept responsibility, and find their place on the new front lines. I'm Jenna Arnold, and this is a lesson on shedding the perfection performance. What is your earliest memory of being creative? So I grew up in a highly creative home because my dad was an artist and an architect and he had a big interior design firm. So, you know, when we would travel, he would point out flying buttresses in churches and synagogues and mosques. And he would talk about the rules of three or he would he raised me to be extraordinarily snobby around lighting. Like I am, I, I can't be at a dinner party that long if the lighting isn't feeling appropriately ambient. <laughs> so I would say the project that I'm the most proud of that I can think of from my earliest days is this dried flower collage that I made for my mom. But I must have been like seven, eight, nine, ten. But I know that I was doing a lot more before that. I love it. It's all a bit of a blur just because it's, it was the backbone of our, the culture in our house. Yeah. It strikes me that as a serial entrepreneur, that creativity is embedded in that. And I was looking at your businesses as your body of creative work. I'm curious if there is an underlying theme for you. I mean, the creative component to my life and my, my personal and professional life is like, creative solutions to make things better. There's studies. And when I say there are studies, I can't cite a single one of them, but I know (laughs) I've read summarized articles and reputable publications, but people who suffer severely from dyslexia, which I did, I couldn't read until I was about 11 and the average reading age is five or six. And I 
kind of flew below the radar for a number of years with my teachers because of that. And it was because I was creatively thinking outside the box to be able to find, figure out ways to get solutions. Like my brain was just filling in using alternative methods. So when I look at the state of the world, which I'm still very concerned about, it's, it's all about what's the creative solution to sometimes it feels like an overwhelmingly complex problem, which Medicare, Medicaid, tax code, like it's a daunting lift to navigate. But then in some cases, you know, when you go back up to 30,000 feet, it's quite simple. One of my talents, which is such a weird thing to flaunt or say even about myself, it came from my role as a first grade teacher, but this idea of taking very complex subjects and making them easy to comprehend and making them easy to wrap one's arms around. I'll never forget when someone started talking to me about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency for the first time. I was like, okay, stop, stop, stop. Start talking to me like I'm a first grader. I can go deep really quickly, but like, I need you to start at square one. And so I I often have found that both there's simplified ways to interpret the state of the world and facts and issues. And there might also be simplified ways to sell a solution, build a movement around a solution, implement a solution. Obviously the devil ends up living in the details, but I think that's sort of how I move through the world. Mm, The simplicity is in the seed. It's interesting because many creatives are dyslexic, in fact, and 25% of the world's self-made millionaires are dyslexic. Right. That was, that was, those were the things that I was reading at some point I read. I think what's so interesting is we, we become this disorders or learning disabilities, how it was referred to, but it's actually a worldview. And I think we have to reframe. Many of my creative clients are dyslexic. It's common. So is your interview subject. (laughs) Yes. Back to this simplified simplicity seed, the Women's March, which you helped to organize, was the largest peaceful protest in human history. I remember marching and I remember watching and listening to the marches in other parts of the world. Did you anticipate it growing that big? I did. I did. I knew it was going to be that big. There was many, many organizers for the Washington DC March, which was the sole march that I helped organize. Obviously we put out a logo and a date. (laughs) There are 667 other marches that were organized worldwide. So it was one big family. Did it start with you guys or did it start somewhere else? the, the, The founding story is a tinge complicated. The first march was Washington, D.C. And then there was a number of organizers from around the country and around the world who were like, we want our own march too. And at one point there was a debate about like, no, it's only D.C. Like everyone just needs to come to D.C. And then from a logistical perspective, people just did their things in small towns in Alaska and Rome and Antarctica. And I think in the end, like I'm I think that was a really great thing. There was a lot of debate, sometimes disappointment around people being pulled to different zip codes, but I knew it was going to be that big. I felt it in my bones. It was an intuitive feeling that none of the data said would be true. You know, there was only 200,000 people who RSVP'd on the Facebook link. And so there were folks on the team who were organizing for a 200,000 person event and the Washington police department and the Washington fire department and the hazmat teams, like they were preparing for 200,000 people. And I just kept saying like, Oh, 
guys, this is going to be like many millions of people, many millions. And so, yeah, so I, I knew it was going to be massive. I could feel it in my bones just for like that mammal instinct of mine. At one point, I think I was on location at like 4.30 a.m. or something like that. And the streets were empty, right? Like the stage was there and the golf carts were there and the boarding and the, you know, the porta bodies and the jumbotrons. And it was like, nobody was there. And I looked at my girlfriend. I'm like, Is that, what if no one shows up? <laughs> like, we're just going to take joy rides on the golf cart up and down the mall, <laughs> which sounds like a really fun time. But then when I, I think there was the first gaggle of women who came in from Iowa, there's like eight of them and they were standing on the other side of the fence and they were just like screaming and giddy. And, and it was like 6am and I'm like, Oh my God, eight people came. This is so exciting. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, by, yeah, no, well, at like 9 30 I just I looked out at the sea of people and I was like yeah this is how yes this is right this is right and then at one point the it was, he wasn't the police chief but he was somebody else with a very significant title in sort of parks and recs public something something and they found me as I was trying to find a friend of mine backstage and they said Jenna the platforms are overflowing and train stations in Delaware and I was like what is it that you want me to do about that? <laughs> okay. And you just, it was, you just saw nothing but a sea of people. It was a really, um, it was cosmic. What was the most surprising thing you learned about yourself? I had always led. I had always been the leader on my initiatives and companies and the things that I've done. And I organized, I was, like I said, one of many organizers, but was organizing with my friends and who also happened to be professional organizers and admittedly, like we were all very over our heads. Like, but I don't know who wasn't like there. It's not like there was like an agency that you could hire to do this. Like no one does this. And I, as was appropriately reflective, then very much still is today. The complexities, the, the social complexities of having a diverse set of leaders making sure that you're centering voices that don't often or have intentionally not been given the loudest microphones. And so I, I think for me, it was a really complicated six weeks of just like, just do whatever it takes, just do whatever it takes to move the satellite in space, right? To make sure we have enough coverage. This is very literally was one of my tasks. It was supposed to be a leaderless moment. And it was to an extent, like everyone just really owned their lanes. But I kept waffling back and forth. Like, is it possible to have leaderless initiatives? Or do you always need a leader? And there are days when I'm like, yes, everyone can just own their lanes. And then there were days when I was like, wow, 30 people are going in 30 different directions. This is going to be a disaster. And so I think what I learned about myself is I saw types of leadership that I want to emulate. And I saw types of leadership that I know I don't want to. I often say to young people when they're doing internships over the summers and during breaks, and they're like, well, I'm not sure if I want to do that. I'm like, well, it's really important to find out if you don't want to do it. So do it for a month so that you can say like, no, that's a hard no and never look back. It's the same thing when you see examples of leaders or people trying to lead in stressful situations being like, wow, that person's struggling. I need to make sure that when look watching that, observing that, bearing witness to it and learning from it as well. So I think I learned that I can be part of a leaderless movement. And it's also hard for me to not have a leader or be the leader. 
Do you think women lead differently? Because this idea of the leaderless or collective movement is often positioned as a very feminine thing. Yeah, I do. I do. I think the challenge, though, resides in the fact that we've all been trained in a very patriarchal way. If you look at indigenous communities that were matriarchies, matriarchal societies, yes, from what I understand, it worked very well. And yes, I do think women inherently lead differently, not that they're different than men, but just because our society raises us differently. And then, so I think we're pushing up against patriarchal rules a blueprint that lacks emotion, that lacks intuition, that that doesn't say any of those things have a role in the boardroom. Or value. Or are valued. And then on top of that, there's a different challenge in how women are accepted broadly as the leaders. And then obviously how women accept other women as leaders. You know, I I will forever say that I, I think that Hillary Clinton was not elected by white women because she represented everything that they didn't accomplish in their lives. I think we lead differently and but I think we're we're trying to lead and trying to topple systems of oppression at the same time. Speaking to the white women piece then and to your book, what sparked you to write the book and I thought one of the most fascinating statistics that you had in there was that 74% of white women avoid conversations about politics because they typically lead to conflict. And that is 74 million women. And I found that myself. And if you bring up any of that, we don't talk about that. When at the root of political discourse is a social and emotional well-being, which is what we are taught to carry, even if we're not conscious that we're carrying it, we're carrying the social and emotional well-being of a family. So it's fascinating. It's just such a a complicated conversation. But tell me what what sparked the idea for the book? And then why was it important for you to write it now? I wrote the book because I needed to read the book. I, I was trying to add up a number of different variables immediately after the 2016 election. One, that statistic that 51% of American white women voted for Donald Trump in 2016, you know, standing on stage at the Women's March, looking out at a sea of pink hats that seemed to be broadly speaking, worn by mostly white women. And then trying to add that up with the relationship that I have with a lot of well-intended, kind, generous white women in my life that I was having a really hard time with what I was seeing happening politically, what I was seeing happening as part of the movement, and then the identity of which I know intimately as middle-class white woman raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia, that like something wasn't adding up, like their intention and what it is that they wanted to, what they want to offer the world. And then also then how we elected that particular candidate. I suddenly had this epiphany because I had heard for so many years, my friends who are activists and on the front lines of many social justice issues who have said things like white people need to go get white people. And now no one's interested in being gotten. And so, so I finally like had this moment of clarity of like, Oh, now I understand what they're saying. Like, I very literally have to go into like suburbs of the United States. And so when I had this moment of like, okay, where's the organization that's talking to white women and like 
how are we asking questions and mobilizing and where do I donate money and what's the listserv I sign up for? And I like picked my head up like a meerkat and it was crickets. There was nothing out there. There was no research. There was no one doing anything. And it was shocking to me because here you have a demographic, which is the largest voting block in the country and will be through 2060. They control 85% of the U.S. economy. They raised the next generation of white boys. And, and here we're just, and again, no one's homogenous. And I surely am not the same mom this morning as I will be this evening when I'm trying to put my three-year-old to sleep. But this idea of like, here we have a massive voting block, massive demographic that has overwhelming influence in both good and very bad ways, not just nationally, but globally. And nobody's talking to her about that power and what comes with that level of responsibility. So I crisscross the country having, having closed door conversations with American white women about existential stop topics. They're in listening circles. Yeah, these listening circles, right. And asked questions like, what are you willing to fight for besides your kids? And talk to me about your legacy and what stereotype about you is true. So all of these subjects that are very hard to answer, which makes <laughs> the binary student in all of us where we've been raised in schools where you either got the A or you didn't, you know the answer or you don't, you won or you lost, uncomfortable when there's suddenly this very complicated gray answer to navigate. And so I drew a couple of conclusions and the publisher and myself thought it was worthy of a book. Is it politics that is the conversation that would you say white women are least willing to have? Or what is the conversation? The conversation that I think they're least willing to have is how they define, protect, use, understand their self-worth and how that then gets translated into giving a shit about the rest of the world. And that giving a shit can be in the form of many different actions, be it in the voting booth, be it in the reallocating resources, be it in the screaming at the top of their lungs or sitting there quietly and learning. And what I found most surprising, which is I'm still wrestling with and trying to unpack this a bit, but this idea of I didn't appreciate the low level of the low grade, like a low grade fever that's exactly what it was, like a low-grade fever of like self-hate and self-disappointment that seemed to exist no matter where I was. And it always took a different form where some people would say, no, my life is so happy and I love my kids and they bring me so much joy or my grandkids or my job or my relationship or my 25 marathons that I've read, you know, like just like everyone has their shtick that they're delivering, right? Someone, everyone has their delivery of the product that they get the A or a close enough of an A to. But everyone also has their disappointments. That's what it means to be human. Everyone has their regrets. Many of the women felt a bit demoralized around legacy, like particularly like the 80 year olds, like some of them said things like, listen, I have five grandchildren and 15 grandchildren and a home and a summer house and beautiful Thanksgivings. And like, not, I went for nothing, but what is it that I'm leaving the world? Like, how is the world better? Because I've been here and I've taken up space. And so I think this idea of holding remorse, holding regret, holding disappointment within ourselves in ways that are forgiven and are allowed because we're not the narrative of 
America is George Washington knew exactly what to do. He was seven feet tall with 0% body fat. And yes, we've fucked up as a country. Yes, we've made mistakes <laughs> as a country, but you know what? We fixed it and we elected a black president and now we have a female vice president. So we have no more race issues. We have no more gender issues. We have everyone has a chance to pull up their bootstraps and get on with it as if like we fixed it all that like we've all knowing we known how to navigate difficult parts of history. And if we've done it wrong, we apologized and we tried to do better or we just did better. So this idea of humility is not part or the idea of the not knowing or the gray, as I like to say, is not acting that it's an issue. Like I, I do know this, but like, oh, that was before that happened a long time mm-hmm. ago. Like, mm-hmm. or this question, which you brought up, why am I supposed to raise my hand and take responsibility for something I didn't do? That's a huge part of that. Oh, that's the foundation of the proud boys myth. That's Mm -hmm. the foundation of the proud boys tenant right now is like, that's not my problem because I didn't do it. Right. And it's fine. No one's pointing fingers at you saying you did it, but you're surely benefiting from those that did. And that is on us to adjust. But it's not as if women aren't suffering from that too. I think you also say in the book, intentional invisibility is a symptom of women who are doing the work of laboring four to 10 times harder mm-hmm. than their male counterparts. Because mm-hmm. it's just easier if we wrap the presents. It's just easier if we put the kids to sleep. It's just easier if we load the dishwasher the way that we like. And my favorite is this 65, 70 year old man who I happen to adore. He sits on the board of one of the organizations I co-founded. He's like, Jenna, I learned how to be really bad at planning birthday parties, learned how to be really bad at, and he used the example of, you know, wrapping presents and loading the dishwasher and folding the laundry. And then he stopped talking. And I was like, what does that mean, Fred? And he was like, that means I never had to do it. I alluded to this in the book. I gave it, you know, maybe a paragraph, but I think it's worth a little bit more of a deeper dive said, here's all of the women who have come before us who will work so hard to get us to where we are, be it the vote, be it the right to work, be it the freedom to have a credit card, be it the freedom to be able to have children and go back to work or have the children and not go back to work. And, you know, this idea of like, all these women have worked so hard to let us attain all of this. But what they didn't do is decrease the bar of attainment or the quality of the bar of attainment. So that we used to be the homekeepers and the children raisers and the meal cookers, and we had to do it all perfectly. And now we're allowed to work, but we have to have the perfect job and the perfect title. And now we're allowed to be athletic, but we have to have the perfect body. And now we're allowed to, and so this idea of like perfection still hasn't been shed. And men don't have that same level of perfection. So they're held up to different self-standards. But intentional invisibility is this idea of like, let me do everything enough that no one's going to question my presence here in the office, right? Like no one's going to say, I'm not going to try to get the raise. And I'm also not going to try to get fired. I just need to like punch in a little bit above my pay grade so that I'm always justifiable on the payroll every single year. But punching in just above what's expected of you is still a higher amount of labor 
Yeah, it, I was going to say, it's still an A. We still have to get an A. We mm-hmm. still have to get an A to be in a C position, mm-hmm. to get paid less, That's to right. more. That's right. We still have to get the A. I'm hopeful that those types of things are changing. And we've been talking about, you know, gender parity and the pay gap for a long time now. And this is an internal shift because money is a, simply mm-hmm. in my view, an expression of an internal belief that you hold value. And you have this quote, which I opened the book, which is wonderful. You cannot, it's a Navajo proverb. You cannot wake a person who's pretending to be asleep. When it comes to value, there are women who intrinsically know what they do is valuable, but it is in conflict to the cultural conversation and they wouldn't dare dare stir the pot right to to say to go against to to push against to use their voice to say actually this is valuable actually i am tired actually these kids are important and until we do that on mass and i know it's possible because we marched on mass we cannot shift the overriding culture i believe What's the solution? If I was going to say three things that white women could do or say, what would it be? Well, one, it's not three, it's 3,000. <laughs> um, and I mean that not in a like, oh, forget it. We're not going to be able to pull this off because I can't even tell you what number seven is. But there's no magic wand in a way that is actually a relief that there's no magic wand. It's not like running a marathon where they're like, Jenna. When your first day, you have to be able to run three miles under 10 minutes. And by month six, you have to be at a seven and a half minute mile. And then by month eight, you'll be able to cross the 26.1 mark. There is no formula for this. But then if I talk at a super, like going back up to 30,000 feet and thinking through that very difficult question that you posed as if I'm talking to my first graders, it's a bit easy to say, well, I don't know what you tell me what's fair. You tell me what's fair. Does everybody deserve to walk into an emergency room? Does everybody deserve to drive on roads that are paved? Does everybody deserve to have access to water that is clean? Does everybody deserve to be taken care of by each other? When you talk about systems and the quote that ultimately was the catalyst for me diving into this work and then writing this book was James Baldwin. And his quote is, white people have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may never well be ever, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will no longer be needed. And when I first heard this quote in the documentary, I am not your Negro, which should be required watching. I had like whiplash. I was just had my second baby and I was finally by myself with the baby and I had this long list of documentaries to get through. So I was holding this like little itty bitty baby and this idea of white folk hating themselves and inequity being a byproduct of that was such a phenomenal concept that I still wrestle with it, but it is still my current hypothesis that when you can find enough reason to convince yourself that you are worthy, that you are needed, 
I surely want and need all of you at this table with us trying to solve these problems that we all collectively face that when you can get out of your own way, you no longer have to prove things to this invisible bleacher of folks that we have in our heads, be it the perfectly manicured front lawn or the son that's the quarterback or the perfect body or the amount of followers on Instagram or whatever it is that we're doing to try to show the world that we're worthy and that we're relevant and that we're doing the right thing. But the only person we really need to convinces ourselves. And once we can find self-love, we don't need to consume as much. We don't need to control as much. We don't need to dominate as much. We don't need to prove at the expense of others, right? The very patriarchal role, which is like, you're either leading, you're either dominating or being dominated. Like those, all those rules fall, fall by the wayside. And then there's room for everyone else to do the same. And so when you ask, like, what are the three things? Well, it's like, it's not just white folk, right? Like our American narrative says you're either winning or you're losing. It's black or it's white. You're Democrat or Republican. Like this idea of like forcing us into labels and into the binary, into what is and what isn't, is just sit yourself in the gray and sit yourself in the I don't know-ness. I'm going to make a generalization, but for the average sort of white woman, it's the need to be the same. It's again, that invisibility. What I see is that the difference comes in simply the beingness. Your soul is, is different by just virtue of being. And if we could just live whoever, whatever side of the spectrum we are on in our beingness and embrace that with one another. Well, and, 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 the beingness is the not knowing. Yes, the beingness, the beingness because is because you don't know confused. what I don't know what your beingness is, and you don't know what mine is. Totally. But, it, but the curiosity to yes. uncover, the curiosity to be in exploration and be in community with, as yes. long as, and this is another set of beliefs. I don't believe that your beingness should result in violence against me. When you are truly authentically human and humble and open, I would argue that it's an impossibility to continue to do harm. There is a very fine line between being complacent and saying, I'm going to be Switzerland here and then letting somebody else suffer. Right after George Floyd was murdered, they were like, but Jenna, when do I say something and when don't I? I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, I just wrote a 400 page book and neither do I. And that freedom of not knowing is where we should be, meaning that if you're on Central Park and you see a white woman calling the police on a black male bird watcher and she's spewing lies about what it is that he's doing, that's an emergency. You have to jump in. You have to say something because we know what happens when law enforcement and black men cross paths. It can lead to death. That requires an instant response. It seems obvious to me when to speak up. Not everybody feels the urgency. We know that we're supposed to help. But something has conditioned people to not stand up for every, not to see everybody as human. But we are in this moment, I believe where it is shifting, where we've never seen white people, white women marching on mass for racial justice in a way that they never have before or weren't required to before. So something is, is shifting and women are using your, their voices and 
women are looking at the issues that are complicated and sitting with them and sitting with the shame they might feel from that complication. But we need to. And we need to shed all of our habits related to when do we speak up? When do we not? How am I going to know if I'm a perfect ally? How am I not going to? How do you, how do you define anti-racism again? Am I anti-racist? Do I have racial biases? Do I have xenophobic biases? We have to get away from the language in some way, shape and form. And we just need to go save the human beings, the people that you are in earshot to, or be it in your HR departments or in your kids' schools, or, you know, this idea of reallocating opportunity, not just resources. There's ways to break the mold and break the system. Patriarchy and capitalism, white supremacy, all those things, they're not working. What got us here is not going to get us there. But on the same token, I'm not interested in a matriarchy. Any archy is dangerous. Any archy is not equal. We need feminine and masculine. I believe that too. That's the esoteric philosophical. I surely don't have the answers to it. And truthfully, I don't think I'm going to see the outcome of that in my life. I just don't. That's a big turn. But this December, we moved into the age of Aquarius. 200 year window where femininity is to be centered. And maybe this is part of the equalizing of the past 200 or 400 or 10 quadrillion years that needed to happen. And so I'm very excited to just, you know, as chapter one said, shut up and move out of the way. And then on the same flip of a dime, if I need to rage like a lion, I will. The people who hear my voice, hopefully more than anyone else are communities that don't have access to other voices representing different types of communities. And so I hope to be a gatekeeper to that. That's why I wrote the book is just to say, hey, come here for a second. This includes. Can you complete the sentence? My wish for every other woman is. That she forgives herself. That she's kinder to herself. I mean, I lay in bed at night too, and I'm pretty rough. You didn't get to that thing. You shouldn't have said that on that phone call. You know, like, just be gentle. Just be gentle to you. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. Oh.